Hello everyone. I'm Chaitan Bhatt. I'm director of the Centre for the Study of Human Rights at the LSE and I'd like to warmly welcome you to this event hosted by the Centre called Your Fatwa Does Not Apply Here, The Human Rights Struggle Against Muslim Fundamentalism. And I'd like to thank you for joining us here this, uh, this evening and it's wonderful to see so many people here. Now the theme of this evening's event represents an area of considerable interest to those who are concerned about human rights globally because it addresses an issue, a powerfully alive issue outside of Euro-America that seems to receive relatively little attention within it. And this is the struggle of ordinary women, ordinary men, progressives, feminists, human rights activists against the Muslim religious right in numerous countries across the world, in South Asia, in Southeast Asia, in the Middle East, in North Africa and elsewhere. And this is a very important and powerful set of struggles, often life and death struggles, often led by women, but which have often been ignored within the human rights movement within Euro-America. I'm therefore honoured and delighted to be able to introduce to you the astounding work of Karima Benoon. She's a professor of international law at the University of California at Davis, but she grew up in Algeria and now lives in the US. In 1995, she participated in the NGO forum at the Fourth World Congress sorry, conference on women in Beijing, very famous Beijing conference. And from 1995 till 1996, she was legal advisor at Amnesty International. She came to the University of California from Rutgers School of Law, where for over 10 years she taught in various human rights areas, including international law, international human rights law, terrorism and international law, women's human rights, and more recently, law and the Arab Spring, which drew on her fieldwork, her extensive fieldwork in North Africa. In 2007, Professor Benoon became the first Arab American to win the Derek Bell Award from the Association of American Law School Section on Minority Groups. She served as a member of the Executive Council of the American Society of International Law and she sits on the board of Amnesty International USA. And she's also uh, a board member of the network of women living under Muslim laws. Karima Benoon has been a consultant on human rights issues for a number of organizations, including the International Council on Human Rights Policy, the Soros Foundation, the Coalition to Stop the Use of Child Soldiers, and UNESCO, and her field missions abroad have included uh, human rights field missions to Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Fiji, Lebanon, Pakistan, South Korea, southern Thailand, Tunisia, and a number of other places as well, I'm sure. Karima Benoon traveled to Algeria in February 2011 to serve as an observer at the pro-democracy protests. And in October 2011, she volunteered as an election observer during the Tunisian Constituent Assembly elections. And she's published widely on questions of uh, the rise of political Islam, women's rights, and so forth in North and West Africa. Now the topic of Professor Benoon's book, Your Fatwa Does Not Apply Here, 
is also a very personal one for her. Mahfoud Benoun, her father, was an outspoken professor at the University of Algeria, and he faced death threats during the 1990s, but continued speaking out against fundamentalism and fundamentalist violence. And in writing this book, Karima set out to meet people who are today doing what her father did back then, but to try and garner for them far greater international support than Algerian Democrats received during the 1990s. Now, copies of her book, uh, you may have seen them, they're available outside, and if you ask her very nicely after the event, I'm sure she'll be delighted to sign a copy for you. Professor Benin will talk for about 40 minutes, and uh, her talk will start with a short film clip, and after the talk, there'll be a good time for your questions. And this event is being audio recorded as well, and we hope to have a podcast of the event, uh, hopefully within a few days, from the LSE website. We very much encourage you to comment on this event using Twitter, and the suggested hashtag for the event is LSE Benoon, which is on the screen behind me. But uh, if you are going to comment, can I please ask you to turn your mobile phones and personal devices, electronic devices and so forth, uh, to silent. Also, can I ask you please to refrain from taking photographs of the images and the films uh, the film clip that's going to be shown and this is to protect the security of some of the people that Professor Benoon will be talking about this evening. Thank you. May I ask you to extend your welcome to Professor Karima Benoon. Thank you all very much for coming and I'd really like to thank the LSE for inviting me and in particular I'd like to thank Dr. Chetan Bhatt both for the lovely introduction but also all the work that he did to put on this event and also Ms. Zoe Gillard here at the LSE uh, who did so much to make this evening come together so beautifully and I, I have to say I'm quite moved to be presenting this material in front of this audience because I happen to know that in this room we have people who have years of experience challenging ayatollahs mullahs, the mujahideen, the Taliban, the Islamic Salvation Front, people who have taken on the silence on these issues in academia, in the media, and even in human rights organizations. And I really have to acknowledge the tremendous contributions that have been made uh, by so many who are here tonight to the work that I'm talking about uh, and also to my own work. Uh, and with all of the sort of terrible news of late, it's difficult to pick which aspect uh, of the book to, to talk about. And there is a lot of anger uh, in the region as I traveled recently in North Africa, not only about the way things are going on the ground, but also what many people perceive to be the lack of understanding uh, of these events, and in particular of the meaning uh, of fundamentalism in this moment. And I, I just, to start, wanted to share an email that I received recently from a young Tunisian woman lawyer to that uh, end on that point. And she said, 
And I think this is real relevant for us to consider this evening. She said, Westerners have to stop considering that the nightmare that we are living under the rule of these fundamentalists is part of our culture and identity, and that being oppressed by fundamentalists is all that we are entitled to. And this nightmare is a moderate one, just because we don't yet have stoning and amputations as punishments. Those who are making us endure this nightmare are called moderate when we are the ones who are suffering and dying. Suddenly they become terrorists when the ones who are suffering and dying are not Arab from Muslim heritage. We are tired of paying the bill for the West's misperception and mis misrepresentation of the reality. When the West realizes that these fundamentalists are not so moderate as it thought or that it is no longer in its interest to claim that they are moderate, they will come to get them using the war on terror. And then again we will pay the bill. In both cases, we will pay it with our blood. And I heard this sort of anger about the misperceptions uh, time and again, whether I was in North Africa or in South Asia. And so what I would like to do tonight, what I try to do in the book, is to bring the voices of some of the people who are doing this work to challenge uh, what Dr. Bhatt called the Muslim far right, uh, what I call Muslim fundamentalists, on the ground to audiences in the West. And as I said, with all the news lately, I could have talked about many aspects of the work, but what I decided to focus on, given recent events of the last month uh, in places like uh, Nairobi and northern Nigeria and northwestern Pakistan and Iraq, was to focus specifically on the issue of the challenge from people of Muslim heritage to Muslim fundamentalist or jihadist terrorism in particular. Uh, now, what is, I think, not well understood, perhaps, in the West is that many groups in Muslim-majority societies have been regularly denouncing this terrorism, even when doing so has been incredibly dangerous for them, and when they have received minimal international publicity. And I think of the Women's Action Forum in Pakistan, for example, that regularly denounces attacks in print and also takes to the streets. Uh, after they occur. After, for example, a March 2013 attack on Shia residents of Karachi, the Women's Action Forum issued a communique that said, once again we share unspeakable horror at the carnage. Once again we express our condemnation and outrage. Once again we wonder how many more times we will do this before there is resolve to deal with religious militancy. But despite all of this evidence to the contrary, in the West it is sometimes assumed that Muslims generally condone terrorism. The right sometimes presumes this because it views Muslim culture as inherently violent. The left sometimes imagines this because it interprets fundamentalist terrorism as simply a reflection of legitimate grievances. But in fact, many people of Muslim heritage, though not yet enough, and I stress that second point as well, are ardent opponents of this fundamentalist violence and for very good reason. Statistically, they are much more likely to be the victims of jihadist terrorism rather than its perpetrators. And I know in the United States where I teach, this is a fact that is often not understood. Terrorism directed against Jews, Hindus, Christians, atheists, or anyone else is equally appalling, certainly. And Muslim fundamentalists have always also killed many across these categories. But those most likely to be on the receiving end in recent years of these violent purification campaigns, so-called, have been people of Muslim heritage killed by Muslim fundamentalist armed groups. So just to give a few examples, during Ramadan 2012 alone, Al-Qaeda claimed responsibility for 131 attacks in Iraq, killing 400 people. A 2009 study of Arabic media sources by the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, which you think might have had an interest in promoting the notion of Western victims, but this 
a counterterrorism center found, in fact, that only 15% of al-Qaeda's casualties between 2004 and 2008 were Westerners. And when they look specifically, again, at Arabic language media sources, between 2006 and 2008, they found that 98% of al-Qaeda's victims were people of Muslim heritage. Now, what makes me especially sick about this is that we almost never learn the names or see the faces in the press of these victims. They have been uh, disappeared in addition to being killed. I've been trying for the last few days to find the name of even one of the 37 Iraqis who were killed in last Sunday's cafe bombing in Baghdad, which we were told was at a cafe frequented by young people. Uh, and maybe somebody else has had better luck finding this, but I couldn't find uh, a single name, let alone a picture. They have become simply part of what a friend of mine used to call the third world body count, right? Just these numbers uh, that don't have faces to go along with them. And tonight I really want to challenge this depersonalization by telling the stories of some people of Muslim heritage who have fallen to jihadi terrorism, but also some who have survived it and gone on to fight back. The topic always makes me think of my childhood neighbor in Algeria, Shedli Hamza. He was one of those truly kind people you gravitate towards as a kid. I was just constantly going over to his house uh, to visit him. He became a consultant for the UN Development Program and worked to create study abroad opportunities for young Algerians. He also ran a school in his spare time. I don't know how he had any spare time. But he was murdered by Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb with 33 others in a December 11, 2007 suicide attack on UN headquarters in Algiers. And his wife actually had to wait all day at the site of the bomb crater to find out his fate. In fact, to find out at the end of a terrible day that she had become a widow. Uh, and of course, you would never find Shedley Hamza's name or Shedley Hamza's picture or Shedley Hamza's story in any of the press coverage of that terrible event. You just got sort of the random uh, statistic, and so it's so important to me to remember his story. The last time I heard from him, uh, Hamza, as my dad uh, simply used to call him, was back in 2005, and he told me that he had made a conscious choice to stay in Algeria to try to improve conditions rather than, as he phrased it, just being a consumer of development wherever I could have emigrated. Now, Shedley Hamza, like so many other people of Muslim heritage, like so many people of whatever faith in Kenya, Iraq, Nigeria, and Pakistan in just the last month, fell to jihadist terrorism, an immeasurable and unacceptable loss for their families, their countries, and the world. And I think of another uh, awful story. This one, actually, I'm glad to say, this photograph and this story actually did get a little bit of media coverage. Uh, and this is a Pakistani grandfather named Sartaj who lost 15 of his family members. Imagine this, his wife, his children, his grandchildren, his in-laws, 15 of them in a single September 29th attack on a Peshawar marketplace. To Londoners, I would say, imagine living through 7-7 several times a week for years on end. Uh, it's very difficult to imagine what that would be uh, like. So it's really in honor of Shedley Hamza and Sartaj the grandfather and those who died in all of these terrorist attacks in recent weeks that I want to focus on this particular issue of resistance to jihadi terrorism, a resistance which has never been more crucial and never been more in need of support. 
Let me just say a few quick words before I do that about sort of how and why I wrote this book, which is called, as Dr. Bott mentioned, Your Fatwa Does Not Apply Here, Untold Stories from the Fight Against Muslim Fundamentalism. So I've had a very busy three years. I interviewed close to 300 people of Muslim heritage from nearly 30 countries, from Afghanistan to Mali, specifically to learn both about their opposition to extremism, uh, but also their own experiences uh, of suffering at the hands of the fundamentalist uh, groups and, and the armed groups as well. Um, and if there are sort of key takeaways in my talk, if I can sum it up, what I learned from this research, what was confirmed to me really in this research, it, it should be the following points. The first is that in each and every country where there are jihadi terrorists targeting civilians or from which there are jihadi terrorists targeting civilians, there are also heroic people defying those militants even though we don't often hear about them. And number two, those brave people face tremendous obstacles and they desperately need international support to be able to succeed. Now, the people I met were incredibly diverse. Uh, they included, and you see here, Deep Saida of the Pakistan Institute for Peace and Secularism Studies, who regularly organizes demonstrations against Taliban abuses and terrorist atrocities in Lahore, despite being threatened and told often that suicide bombers will come to any protest that she organizes. Uh, she goes ahead, and you can see here uh, one of the protests that she organized that I attended that was against the blasphemy laws and the sentencing to death of, a, in this case, a Christian woman, Asiya Bibi, uh, under those laws. Um, I also met a man, an amazing man from northern Mali. I, of course, cannot show you his photograph, uh, but I call him Mr. Bodmar. It's what he asked me to call him. He was a teacher teaching in occupied northern Mali at that time. It was under the military occupation of a number of jihadist groups, some of which were allied to uh, Al-Qaeda. Uh, but Mr. Bodmar absolutely wouldn't give up. Like Shedley Hamza, he's somebody who could have left. He chose to stay in northern Mali. He kept his school open, even when it was actually occupied. The premises were occupied by Mujau, the West African uh, ally of Al-Qaeda. Uh, and he kept teaching boys and girls together in the same classroom, risking his life uh, to do this. And you see his explanation of why he did that uh, here under the photograph. Now, the question I ask myself again and again is, given these stories, given this courage, why is it that these people are not more well-known internationally? I mean, why is it that everybody knows who Osama bin Laden was, but almost no one knows about all the people standing up to those of the ilk of bin Laden in all of these different contexts? And that's really why I wrote this book. I wanted to try to win more recognition and support for the people doing this work. And as Chetan Bhatt explained, I did this for very personal reasons, uh, because I had watched my own father, Mahfoud Benoun, who was an anthropologist, risk his life in the 1990s to stand up to fundamentalism in his home country, in Algeria. And the thing that I remember is that even when he was driven from his home and ultimately forced to retire early from the university due to death threats from the fundamentalist armed groups, including one he received on his kitchen table, he remained inside the country and he continued to publish pointed criticisms of both the fundamentalists and at times the government they fought as well. And I remember in particular something that he wrote, a three-part series that was published in the newspaper El Watan in November of 1994. You saw the offices of El Watan in the clip. And this series of articles was called How Fundamentalism Produced a Terrorism Without Precedent. And in it, he denounced what he called the terrorists, quote, radical break with true Islam as it was lived by our ancestors. 
So for me, the book is an attempt really to be in keeping with my father's legacy and his defense of the Islam of my grandparents, uh, which was a very tolerant and open one, against those who would turn it into a totalitarian terror manifesto uh, today. And that's really why I wrote the book. Uh, as Dr. Bott mentioned, Algerian Democrats, like Mahfoud Benoun, but many, many others, received very little international support in the 90s. People are often surprised uh, when they hear this. Perhaps it's counterintuitive. But it's true. Um, and unfortunately, they received little support even from the international human rights community, which often seemed to be unable to grasp the threat to human rights from the ideology of Islamism. Uh, and let me stress the ideology of Islamism being something radically different than the religion of Islam, which is one of the world's great religious traditions practiced in many different ways uh, by more than a billion people around the world. Uh, and I think this misunderstanding really persists today, this failure in the West to understand what in fact Islamism means for the human rights of populations in Muslim-majority countries. And I think we can see this in the press coverage today of what is happening in countries like Egypt. And what I do know, both from personal and political experience, is that doing this work by yourself, feeling that the international community does not know about you and does not even understand the context and the challenges that you're facing, is a very lonely endeavor. And I think here of, oh, sorry, and there's uh, one, I missed one slide, actually. There's my father I meant to show you on the top left in his uh, study. I'm sort of technologically challenged, so we're lucky I'm only one slide off. Um, here we go. Uh, and so I think about this issue of, of loneliness, of a quote uh, from Sara Keita Diakite, a very prominent Malian lawyer there on the left, and she said to me in Bamako in December at a time when the northern half of her country was still occupied uh, by jihadist groups, she said, look, international solidarity is very helpful. When you live such a crisis alone, it is much more difficult to bear. And so what I think is so important is to try to break down this wall of loneliness by connecting more and more of these people who are doing this work on the ground with people who are championing similar values elsewhere, human rights, uh, equality, tolerance, and so on. And so that's really what this is about. Let me just say a couple of words about what I mean by Muslim fundamentalism. And I could have the whole talk just about that, and that's often what academics uh, do. I don't want to do that, but I do want to say a few uh, words. And I, in the book, cite a very excellent definition that comes from the Algerian sociologist, Mariamé Eli Lucas, who was the founder of the Network of Women Living Under Muslim Laws, a wonderful organization, network, uh, that I still work with. And the definition that Mary May gives of fundamentalisms, note the S, so not just within Islam, but fundamentalisms for her are political movements of the extreme right, which in a context of globalization, manipulate religion in order to achieve their political aims. And the Pakistani post-colonial theorist Sadia Abbas has referred to this as the radical politicization of theology. Again, I think the critical piece of this is the notion that these are political movements. And not only that, they are extremists. They are far-right political movements. It's interesting to think about the totally different media coverage given to the Greek far-right party uh, at the moment and the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in Egypt. The Western press seems to understand that the Greek far-right party is on the far-right. That's never the way. Uh, that the Muslim Brotherhood uh, is uh, described and, and certainly should be. Uh, now, one of the sub-movements, uh, you know, again, these fundamentalist movements are themselves uh, diverse, so I'm generalizing here in the time frame, but one of the sub-movements that are particularly dangerous 
uh, are the Salafi jihadists, uh, and they believe themselves to be at war or are, in fact, with real or sometimes allegedly occupying military forces, which may include the armed forces of the countries uh, that they live in, uh, and they operate in a range of contexts. They not only believe in an aggressive jihad, as many of the fundamentalist groups do, uh, and of course I should stress there are other kinds of uh, jihad, but they believe in a very aggressive jihad, and they actually practice it. And here I'm thinking of groups like the Pakistani Taliban, the Afghan Taliban, uh, the permutations of Al-Qaeda, and uh, so on. Uh, so I'm going to be talking uh, primarily about stories uh, related to those groups this evening. But I should stress that the violence is not the only problem. Right, it's the underlying fundamentalist ideology that is also espoused by some movements uh, that either don't use or advocate violence or at least do so much more quietly, much more clandestinely and at a lower level. Uh, the groups that are so often uh, deemed, quote, moderate Islamists in, in uh, the Western press but are experienced as anything but by the people on the ground. And here we see movements that are advocating uh, discrimination systematically, whether discrimination against religious minorities, whether discrimination against women and so on, uh, advocating violence against women, advocating practices like corporal punishment that violate human rights, stifling freedom of expression through uh, blasphemy laws and threats and so on, uh, demonizing human rights, especially women's human rights uh, defenders, uh, and ultimately, and I think this is very important to understand because sometimes these movements themselves use the language of freedom of religion, ultimately themselves stifling the freedom of religion of everyone who chooses to practice in a different way uh, than they do. Now, the former UN Special Rapporteur on Religious uh, Intolerance, a gentleman uh, named Abdel Fattah Amor, who is a Tunisian law professor, in a notable 1999 report framed religious extremism, as he termed it generally, as a rising threat to human rights. And back at that time in 1999, he was already calling for the elaboration of a set of international standards for dealing with this problem, a recommendation which has never been heeded, and I think should be and is very, remains very relevant. Uh, but what we've seen generally, I think that was a very good international response, but generally what we've seen uh, as an international response, or particularly responses uh, in the West, have sort of shaped up as two sets of discourses, and we're sort of left with these uh, two completely unsatisfying choices. Uh, on the one hand, we have the very discriminatory or flawed characterization that one sometimes hears uh, on the right, certainly in the United States, I think that's true here as well, suggesting that Islam is inherently fundamentalist or that all Muslims are fundamentalist. Uh, and this is obviously not only offensive, but completely inaccurate and unhelpful. But unfortunately, on the left, one also hears responses sometimes that are simply too politically correct to engage with the topic uh, of fundamentalism at all, to recognize it, that it is a reality, that it is a threat uh, to human rights in Muslim contexts, uh, and even worse sometimes to apologize for it. And in my view, uh, this, this is a really unacceptable set of responses as well. And so what I'm looking for is another way of talking about these issues that comes from neither of these places uh, and that really draws from the, the experience that people are having with these movements uh, on the ground. And, and I have to say, you know, I, I am very aware, painfully aware, that there has been a terrible rise in discrimination against people of Muslim heritage and anybody confused with them in the last few years. Uh, I know that's true in the U.S. Um, I know that's true uh, here. I know that there has been a terrible uh, backlash after the, the Woolwich attack and so on. But even these kinds of ghastly racist attitudes and violence, uh, and which are both things that we have to be uncompromising in combating as well, 
even these do not mean that we should be silent about the topic of Muslim fundamentalism or about jihadi violence. Uh, what we actually need is, in fact, a principled human rights-based critique of discrimination against Muslims alongside a principled human rights-based critique of Muslim fundamentalism and the violence associated with it. In other words, a multi-directional approach, something which is, in fact, I am painfully aware, uh, quite difficult to achieve. But in my view, one of the key ways, in fact, of challenging discriminatory notions about people of Muslim heritage is to display their diversities. And one of the ways to do that is to focus on the stories of people of Muslim heritage, some practicing, some agnostic, some atheist, who have been victims uh, of terrorist violence and who have challenged the jihadis. And tonight I want to introduce you to a few more of these people. So this story comes from the first chapter of my book, which is called Creativity Versus the Dark Corner, and it's about the work of artists in many places, Pakistan, Somalia, Algeria, uh, standing up to the fundamentalists, either through the content of their work or simply through carrying, it, <coughs> carrying on uh, with it. And here you see Faizan Pirzadeh, who was an arts performer in uh, Pakistan. He was at the time the artistic director of the Rafi Pir Theatre Workshop. And along with his brothers and sisters, uh, he had brought 24,000 performing artists from 86 countries uh, to perform in Pakistan and also promoted the work of local uh, Pakistani performers in dance, music, puppetry, theatre and so on both at home and abroad. They were a sort of, they described it to me, a kind of NGO ministry of uh, culture and they really brought joy to generations of arts lovers uh, in Pakistan. But unfortunately, as uh, jihadist violence was increasing in 2008 in Pakistan, they began to receive threats to call off their events. Uh, usually they were told in, in the threatening calls and other kinds of communications uh, that what they were doing was against Islam, something which Faizan Pirzada, who was himself uh, quite a religious person in a sort of spiritual uh, tradition, really rejected. Uh, and so they continued with their events, absolutely. And unfortunately in 2008, a jihadi bomber actually struck their eighth World Performing Arts Festival in Lahore. Uh, with three separate devices that went off in the venue, producing what Faizan Pirzadeh described to me as rain of glass, which injured nine people. You can imagine what would happen if this were a, an auditorium uh, that in fact had windows and, and uh, more lights and if devices would go off uh, in here. It was actually amazing that only nine people were uh, injured. It could have been much, much worse and they captured a little boy who had been the bomber's accomplice uh, who had uh, sort of a packet of crisps, a box of packets of crisps that he had come in to sell uh, and he had small IEDs mixed in with them and this was very upsetting to Faisan Pirzada because the venue was also full of children who had come to the event. So then the Pirzadas faced this terrible dilemma. What do you do? Your audience has been targeted. Do you give up, which is what the bombers want you to do in the interest of protecting your audience? Or do you go ahead in the name of defending freedom of expression and culture in your context? And the family gathered and about one in the morning, Faisan Pirzadeh told me they decided, as he put it, ladies and gentlemen, this ain't going to work. There is nothing against Islam in this. This festival is going to go ahead. And they announced uh, that evening that the festival would continue the next day and they had no idea what would happen. Uh, but in fact, the next day, thousands and thousands of people filled the venue, uh, more than they had had at their events previously, which was simultaneously absolutely wonderful and completely terrifying. And Faizan Pirzada said that he ran up to a young woman who came into the venue with her two small children and he said, you do know that there was a bomb here yesterday and you do know that there is a threat that there will be another bomb here today. 
And she said, I know that, but I used to come to your festivals with my mother, and I still have these images in my mind. And for her, it was so important, uh, this possibility for her children, too, to have images of puppets and color and, and light. She knew she simply had to be there. So they continued that festival very successfully and brought it to its end. But the following year, they lost their sponsors due to the security threat. And so when I met them in 2010, they were having their first event subsequent to the bombs in the very same venue, which was the Muammar Gaddafi Stadium in Lahore. And so there we uh, sit at the ninth Youth Performing Arts Festival, uh, and I was sitting with Mr. Pierzeda, who had brought his own teenage daughter, Noor, who was sitting next to him. Her school had pulled out of the festival for security reasons. Uh, but there were other girls there performing uh, and actually a girls' school play. And this was at a time, of course, when the Taliban were attacking girls' schools uh, in Pakistan. And yet here you had all these children on stage singing and dancing, playing mice and water buffalo. And you could see Mr. Pierzeda sitting in the front seat, sort of leaning forward as if he could jump on stage if he needed to at some point uh, to protect the children. And you could feel a kind of collective sigh of relief when the play ended and this sort of huge peaceful boom of applause filled the hall and some people were even crying this sense that children's theater is uh, still possible and I remember thinking the bombers made the headlines two years ago but this night and these people here in this audience this story is as important is more important of a story and the play was called, that I went to see, was called The Knot. It was a musical in the Punjabi language, and the play's subtitle was Don't Tie Your Tail to a Coward. And I remember thinking that absolutely no one in the venue has done that. Uh, now, the lesson that I really drew from this story of the Pirzadas was something that my father tried to teach me, which was not to do the terrorists' work for them. That is to say, to keep doing your work. Despite all that had happened, Faizan's daughter, Noor, told me that she wanted to grow up and be a theater director like her father. And I think it was no accident that when I was leaving the festival that night in the free drawing space outside, I came across uh, where somebody had scrawled sort of the motto, really, of the evening, two words that simply said, no fear. So I'd like to tell a story uh, actually from Algeria in the 1990s in the chapter of the book that is about that, which is called Growing Roses in the Triangle of Death. The Triangle of Death was a part of Algeria uh, that was hardest hit by fundamentalist violence in the 90s uh, in a town uh, in and around a town uh, called Blida, uh, about an hour's drive south of Algiers and the surrounding area. And I think what is not really widely known outside about Algeria in the 1990s is that the vast majority of the violence that happened in the country, somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 people uh, killed, the vast majority of that violence was carried out by the fundamentalist armed groups that were battling against the Algerian state uh, and primarily their targets. Uh, were not the state, but in fact the civilian population. Now the state too did commit atrocities including torture, including about 8,000 forced uh, disappearances, things that I also talk about uh, in uh, a chapter in my book. Uh, but most of that violence really happened uh, in these areas by groups like the GIA, the Armed Islamic Group, the AIS, the Army of Islamic Salvation, and so on. And I went to Blida, the heart of the Triangle of Death, to meet the woman you see here, Sharifa Khadar, who is one of Algeria's most important human rights advocates. 
She is also, like so many of her compatriots, a survivor of that fundamentalist violence of the 90s. On June 24, 1996, thugs from the armed Islamic group came to the Khedar house in Blida and shot Sharifa's mother and her niece, both of whom somehow survived, but also shot her sister Layla, who did not survive, and tortured her brother Mohammed Reda to death. Now, most of those involved in the attack on the Khedar family were later killed by the security forces. Sharifa, of course, knows this because after the murders of her brother and sister, she did the most amazingly courageous thing. She would go and visit the local morgue every time there were reports that armed men had been killed until, she, until the day when she actually found uh, the bodies of the men she recognized who had come to the family home and killed her brother and sister. Uh, and I was so struck by the kind of determination and sort of internal steel that it would take to be able to do that, uh, that I asked her sort of a ridiculous question, you know, how, how did you survive this experience? And I remember her sort of wondering aloud, survive, she said, I don't know if I actually did survive. She said, a part of you leaves with them. My brother was older than I, my sister was younger, and it is as though your two eyes or your two legs are gone. And there you see her sister, Leila Khaddar, who was a very prominent uh, lawyer, and you see the family home uh, where, they, where she and the brother, Mohammed Reda, were killed. But the amazing thing about the story, in addition to the terrible cruelty of these killings, the amazing thing about the story was that the tragedy did not stop Sharifa Khaddar. Rather, it actually started her efforts on behalf of other victims. Three months later, on October 17th of 1996, she founded a group called Jazet Eruna, which means Our Algeria, which is the Association of Victims of Islamist Terrorism. And she founded this group along with other survivors. She told me people were burying their families alone. Others would not go to the funerals because you would end up on a death list. It was as though the victim was guilty. Sharifa knew all too well what a difference this support would make because thousands had attended the funeral of her sister and brother. She told me, my mother said, even in our sadness, we are lucky. And I thought, no victim should be buried in anonymity. So she started Jazet Eruna to stand with suffering families across the terrorized triangle of death in their worst moments. Jazet Eruna is not the only group that did this incredibly brave work in Algeria. Here you see a picture uh, of women from a number of women's groups, including one called RAFT, which in Arabic means refuse, uh, but is also the acronym for the Rally of Algerian Democratic Women. Uh, and they used to also go to the funerals of victims of terrorism. Women traditionally in Algeria do not go to the cemetery, but they would go uh, en masse. And they would also protest at the site of attacks. Uh, so there's a famous story after the Amarush Road bombing where they showed up the next day to protest and the police said, well, we can't protect you. And they said, protect us or not, but we're here. And they actually filled the bomb crater with flowers. And though the role of the security forces in stemming the worst of the terrorism was very critical, unfortunately it also led to grave abuses of uh, human rights, uh, another very serious problem. Uh, that role was critical, but popular opposition made a huge difference uh, in curbing the terrible waves of violence in the 90s as well. Now, the 90s are thankfully over. The worst of the violence in Algeria is over. The fundamentalist armed groups were defeated largely. Uh, we can talk about, if people want to, the so-called uh, residual terrorism, which remains a big problem. But the work of Jazet Eruna, the Algerian Association of Victims, is far from over. And today, its members persist in their work to fulfill what they call, what you saw in the first slide with Sharifa's picture, 
the duty of memory, the duty of truth, the duty of justice, by taking care of victims and fighting to preserve their history. And something that I think is um, very interesting, and I'll just go back to Sharifa's picture here, something that I think is very interesting, one of the most important things that she said to me, uh, something that really bucks a lot of the politically correct Western rhetoric of recent years, is that instead of just battling terrorism, in her view, you must also fight fundamentalism, right? You have to fight fundamentalism which makes the bed of terrorism. Uh, so for her, these things are absolutely linked. And it's not just an ideological point, it's a very practical one. She says they will not lack recruits, these groups, as long as there are young people indoctrinated in the universities, in their communities. And she challenges that indoctrination that makes people fundamentalist and also the impunity for the crimes they then commit. And I learned many things from Sharifa Khadar, but one of the greatest things I learned uh, is that perhaps the this single best thing one can do with one's own suffering is to turn it into a steadfast determination to help others who face the same danger, which is exactly what she did. So now I want to tell a, a story of the book that comes from the chapter on uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan. And uh, this is a chapter called Why I Hate Al-Qaeda. Uh, and I'm just going to tell you uh, one, one story, though I could tell many others uh, from, from this chapter. I think very important to think about Afghanistan uh, now. Now, the chief prosecutor of Herat province in Afghanistan, when I went to meet her, entered surrounded by four large men with four huge guns pointed downward. Maria Bashir, who you see here, looked very small amid her guards, but she stood very straight and sure among them. She is the first and only woman chief prosecutor in Afghanistan, and I have to say I am grateful that bodyguards fill the antechamber of her office when I go to see her, because the contemporaneous risk that she faces is perhaps the most significant of anyone I will interview in all of my travels. Before, I had three guards, she tells me. After that, the number increased to eight. Now that I've seen a lot of difficulties, in fact, it is 23. A lot of difficulties is a nice euphemism. She's never overplayed her situation. But a lot of difficulties turns out to mean that she has survived bomb attacks that could have killed her, that could have killed her children. Uh, she said, three years ago, there was an explosion near my house, and 15 minutes earlier, my children were playing in that spot. She can't even send her children to school anymore. They are schooled at home. The police tell her regularly that she is being targeted by suicide attackers and to prove the point, her would-be assailants once sent an envelope to her house containing three bullets. Now, she has been chief prosecutor since 2007 and she said that when she first started, all the people believed a woman could not do such a position. But she felt that as they began to evaluate her actual work, not just her identity, people came to accept her. Now, I do have to point out she has received some criticism, including in the Western press uh, in recent years, but I think that happens to any prosecutor, uh, especially when you are prosecuting in a country where, as in Afghanistan, some of the laws are unjust, uh, and unfortunately, you do not have discretion to simply do away uh, with those laws. But I think her courage and her amazing contribution uh, is undeniable. Uh, she started a unit in the prosecutor's office that focuses on cases of violence against women, which are incredibly dangerous to prosecute in the context. And then meanwhile, she prosecutes in corruption cases, annoying some of the people uh, who might be the very same people that she needs to uh, protect her from the Taliban. Uh, so 
I ask her, you know, why does she continue with this? And I, what I remember is that she, so, she sort of smiled even before the interpreter had finished repeating my question. She, she knew exactly what I had asked, you know, why are you continuing this? She said, this is the question that everybody asks, as she put it, why you risk not living? And what I remember really is, again, that she answered without any bravado at all. She said simply for her, a better future for the Maria Bashirs to come was worth the danger. And she knew that things would not change for women in Afghanistan unless women took these kinds of risks. And I remember her thinking and writing in my notes that night with this kind of quietly ferocious role model, uh, it is clear that the women of Afghanistan need solidarity and support, but not patronizing or pity. Uh, there's this book that's very chic in the U.S. Academy at the moment called Do Muslim Women Need Saving? I think it asks the wrong question altogether. That's not the point. What we're talking about is solidarity. And it's very clear that many people in many of these contexts uh, need a great deal of that. Now, given Maria Bashir's official position, I did not want to put her on the spot by asking of her what I asked of many others, which is what she thought of government negotiations with the Taliban. But the interesting thing is that that is exactly what she wanted to talk about. She said, if we give them a place in the government, who will protect women's rights? Afghan women, she told me, are disappointed that the international community seems more interested in the success of the political talks with the Taliban than in supporting women. And I think that echoes something that one is hearing from Iranian human rights activists at the moment as well, when the international community is very focused on peace talks uh, with the Iranian government, which are, of course, very important. But as a result, no one wants to talk about uh, human rights. And I think we have to find a way to talk about both of these things, uh, human rights and peace, uh, at the same time. Uh, but Maria Bashir really felt very strongly about this when I interviewed her. She urged the international community, in her words, to not forget the promise about women's rights because now they want peace with the Taliban. And I have to say it's, it w would be really awful to imagine what would happen to somebody like Maria Bashir if and when, perhaps I should say when, unfortunately, the Taliban were to regain any real power. And the thing that I learned from her is really about the power of transcending your own fear in the face of those who seek to use it against you. Because after all, the point of terrorism is to terrorize. And if you do not allow that, which Maria Bashir has absolutely not allowed, that in and of itself is a kind of triumph. A few weeks after I met her, I was back in the US and I saw a headline on the internet that an Afghan prosecutor had been assassinated. And it was, you know, again, one of those tiny little bullet point headlines with no information. And I sort of Googled desperately. Uh, and thank goodness I found out that it was not Maria Bashir, but very sadly, another prosecutor named Mohammed Azam in Helmand province had been gunned down by two men on a motorcycle on his way to work. And I remember thinking my great hope is that I never see Maria Bashir's name in a headline. And I could really hear her words again in my head saying, the situation of the women of Afghanistan will be better, as you see here. We should pave the ground for this, even if we are killed. Now, the <laughs> I was about to say the last story I wanted to tell, but I actually want to try to sneak in uh, one more set of stories and then one very last uh, coda at the end. But I, I am keen to get to the comments and discussion. And forgive me for running so long, but I did do almost 300 um, interviews. And there's so many stories, and it's very difficult. It's sort of like choosing a favorite child to choose which stories to tell. So um, 
Let me tell, because I think this is very relevant at the moment, a few stories from the Somali-American community uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And here, for obvious reasons, I am not showing people's photographs, and they would prefer it if I don't do that. And as we know, there has been a video threat from al-Shabaab again recently to Somalis who oppose them. Um, and uh, so this is why you get the book cover as the slide here. <laughs> Now, the chapter about Somali-American resistance to al-Shabaab is called the Ramadan Basketball Tournament. Uh, and I think it's so important to talk about it now in the wake of this horrible uh, Westgate Mall uh, attack that was actually deliberately carried out on the day of a children's cooking competition and in which there was a sort of terror apartheid uh, practiced where some hostages were allowed to leave the building uh, based on their religious heritage. Although I was also told that uh, some people who were in fact Muslims were not allowed to leave regardless of what they knew about the name of the Prophet's mother because they didn't look like what Muslims were supposed to look like in the view of al-Shabaab. Uh, so I don't want to sort of overstate this, but nonetheless there was this attempt to segregate the hostages on the basis of a religion that was truly, uh, truly appalling. Um, but I was really lucky in my travels to meet Somalis who were working against this sort of violence and the group that pervaded. Uh, and I did this in Minneapolis, which is sort of the capital. It's a very cold Midwestern town, for those of you who don't know uh, the Midwest of the U.S. It's a very unlikely host city for uh, Somali refugees, but it is the largest Somali uh, community in the United States. Uh, and I met people right across from a place called the Towers, which is a sort of big apartment complex that is the center of what's called Little Mogadishu in the city. And one of the people that I uh, met was a gentleman named Abdurazek Bihi. And he was one of those at the forefront of trying to fight back against <coughs> al-Shabaab's attempts to recruit a small number of Somali-American youth from Minneapolis to go and fight in the jihad and perhaps even carry out uh, attacks similar to the Westgate attack. And the reason that Mr. Behe became involved in this is that it hit very close to home. His studious 17-year-old nephew, Burhan, was recruited by al-Shabaab in 2008, spirited back to Somalia, in fact, a country he had left at the age of two that he didn't know at all, turned into uh, who, a person who was supposed to be a fighter named Little Bashir, and then ultimately, when he proved to be no terrorist and decided he wanted to go home, he was killed by al-Shabaab. So Abdurazak Bihi, who was the director of the no-budget Somali Education and Advocacy Center, began vocally denouncing both the Shabaab recruitment, but also the prevention failures of both U.S. and Somali-American institutions, such as the Abu Bakr al-Sadiq Islamic Center, where he believes his nephew and other youth were radicalized while attending a youth program. In addition to the mosque, Abdurazak Bihi blames state and federal officials for failing to do more to combat poverty in his community and provide youth with alternatives. Bihi has virtually no financial means of his own, has had to be very creative to stand up to the al-Shabaab recruiters who have a great deal of money. And so one of the things that he did to counter al-Shabaab's efforts to sway a disaffected youth was to organize a Ramadan basketball tournament right after the al-Shabaab uh, bombing in Uganda that uh, targeted viewers watching the final of the World Cup. This was trying to, to give youth a way to embrace sports within the community and embrace uh, peaceful and cooperative activities. But he had very little money uh, to do this. The al-Shabaab recruiters accused him of being funded by the FBI and he said, I wish. You know, he said, nobody, nobody's giving me the money to do this. So he had to really struggle and scrape to keep this basketball tournament going on. Um, 
It's very interesting. I mean, he has been really vilified by the leaders of that uh, Islamic center in Minneapolis for doing what he was doing. Uh, he was even attacked by some organizations that claim to represent the civil liberties of Muslims in America, like the Council on American-Islamic uh, Relations. Uh, and he told me a story about seeing the imam of the mosque on Somali TV calling him and the other families who were asking questions about the recruitment infidels and saying they were tools of the infidels and that they were trying to destroy the mosque. Now what's interesting to that about that is it is in complete contrast to Behe's own vision of what he was trying to do by exposing the Al-Shabaab recruitment drive. As he said it, save the religion I love from a very small number of extremists. Now, another person who was trying to do that is Imam Sharif Muhammad of the Dar al-Hijra Masjid, which is located across from the towers. When I visited him at his mosque, he stressed that very few youth had been recruited from a very large community. But nevertheless, the Imam was very concerned and aware of his own responsibility. And he said, we need Imams like me to say that this is against our religion. We need to say it loudly. In fact, he told me he was the only imam in Minneapolis, Somali imam, who had come out and condemned uh, the recruitment. But he did it very bravely, very publicly, and unfortunately got very little media coverage in the process uh, of doing it. But nevertheless, with the little media coverage that he did get, uh, he then began uh, to get threats and nasty phone calls, as he put it, from people saying that I'm not a good Muslim. During my stay in Minneapolis, I also learned of a protest organized after what is called Somalia's 9-11, the December 2009 suicide bombing carried out by a Somali from Denmark. Think about this. In one of the poorest, most conflict-ridden countries in the world for the last few decades, what did this suicide bomber do? He targeted a medical graduation ceremony in Mogadishu, where people had been trained uh, to be doctors and nurses and were going out to uh, help people in their country and he killed 22 including the female health minister Kamar Adan Ali who is somebody who was trying very hard to improve hospital conditions in the country and disgusted by this a hundred Somali Americans including Ali's brother rallied in the Minnesota slush. Now, only 100 people were there. It doesn't sound like much, but if you knew what Minnesota was like in December, you would realize that's actually a very significant number. So we need more people at these demonstrations, but those who did show up did not get national and international media coverage for being there. And it seems to me, really, the lesson I draw from this and from now thinking about this in light of the Westgate attack is that to protect human rights in many places, the international community must continue to vigorously combat this kind of jihadist terrorism. Though, of course, it has to be done in accordance with international law. Um, and the lesson I really draw from these Somali-American stories is just how vital it is to that end to keep speaking out, to denounce indefensible crimes uh, committed in the name, however erroneously, of your heritage. Uh, and I think it's so important to recognize the Somalis uh, who have done that, who have been speaking out against the savagery of al-Shabaab. And now I really am going to end with one last story. Uh, and I end with this story not only because it's a story from Algeria, which is my father's home country, a country where I in part grew up, but I end with this story because it really resonates for me because I am a law professor and this is the story of a law student. And her name was Emel Zanun Zawani. Uh, she's one of the people to whom the book is dedicated. Uh, and her life to me is really a reminder of how incredibly urgent this need is. Uh, to counter this violence that we've been talking about tonight and the ideology that motivates it. ML had said to her father, I will study law and you will always have your head high. 
She was, as you see in the picture, a 22-year-old law student in Algeria. She had the same dreams I had of a legal career back in the 1990s, maybe the same dreams that some of you who are students now uh, have. And she absolutely refused to give up her studies, despite the fact that the fundamentalist armed groups battling against the Algerian state threatened all who continued their education. Now, on January 26, 1997, so 16 years ago, Emel Zanoun boarded a bus in Algiers where she was studying to go home and spend a Ramadan evening with her family in the town of Sidi Musa, and she would never finish law school. When the bus arrived outside her hometown, it was stopped at a checkpoint manned by men from the armed Islamic group. I thought about this a lot on Sunday with the terrible killings by Boko Haram at checkpoints in northern Nigeria, which brought back a lot of these uh, memories. Now, when ML's bus was stopped in 1997 at that checkpoint, she was carrying her school bag with her, so she was obviously identifiable as a student, and she was ordered to get off the bus. And subsequently, she was killed in the street in front of all of the other passengers. The men from the armed Islamic group who cut her throat then told the others who had watched, if you go to the university, the day will come when we will kill all of you, just like this. Now, ML died at exactly 5.17, which we know because when she fell in the street, her watch broke. Her mother showed me the watch and very graciously allowed me to photograph it. And what I always think about is the way the second hand is still optimistically aimed upward towards a 518 that would never come for Emil. Shortly before her death, she had told her mother, Horia, Mom, please put this in your head. Nothing will happen to us, inshallah, God willing. But if something happens, and she was talking about herself and her sisters who were students, if something happens to us, you and dad must know that we are dead for knowledge. You and father must keep your heads held high. Now, Emil Zanun's watch stopped at 5.17, and I have been sort of fixated on this incredible loss of this young person with so much promise. But as I did the research and as I wrote, your fetwa does not apply here, I tried to find hope, Emil's hope. In fact, her name uh, means hope. And I found it in two things. The first is in the strength of her family, in continuing to tell her story, as so many other people that I met for the book told me stories that were just absolutely gut-wrenching for them uh, to tell. But they continued to tell these stories, despite official amnesia. And in Emil's case, her family went on with their lives, despite the terrorism. Her sister Lamia even overcame her own grief and fear and went to law school, practicing law today in Emil's memory in Algiers, something which is only possible because the fundamentalist armed groups were, in fact, defeated. Um, and so I think that was a very specific place that I found hope. But I found hope generally as I traveled around, as I interviewed people from Afghanistan to Mali, from South Asia to North Africa. I found hope in the fact that ML Zanun Zawani lives on today, wherever women and men continued to defy the jihadis like those I met in Pakistan, like those I met from Somalia. And I think ML's hope lives on wherever people continue, as she did, to strive for knowledge, even in the face of extremism, and to keep their heads held high. Uh, and I think we have to honor those people by remembering them. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Karima, very much indeed for a very powerful and enlightening uh, presentation, a very moving one. 
We have time for some questions, and I know uh, many people have questions for Karima. Um, I will take questions in groups of three, maybe four, see how many we can fit in. We do have to finish this meeting just before eight, uh, otherwise I'll get into trouble. <laughs> and you'll also see our wonderful stewards coming around with microphones uh, to the people that I indicate. So please raise your hands and also please wait. I know it takes a bit of time, but please wait until uh, they have put a mic in front of your face before you ask your question so everyone in the audience can hear you clearly. Also, when you ask your question, can you please state your name and your organizational affiliation? And can I please plead with you, no long speeches, <laughs> please, you already have no that. long speeches. Uh, uh, you know, well, one rule of thumb is, the, could you just ensure that the time it takes you to ask your question is less than the time it takes to answer it? Yeah. Okay, who'd like to, I think there was a hand raised just there. Yep. Uh, my name is Yanis, a member of the public. Thank you for your talk. found it really interesting. Um, you mentioned that many of the left say that fundamentalist terrorist attacks are a product of various almost um, maybe legitimate political grievances. Do you think that the fundamentalist ter terrorist attacks that occur globally have anything to do with the fundamental tenets of Islam? And if not, are, do you believe that there are any unique personal and political circumstances that affect the Islamic community so disproportionately compared to any other religious group that could account for the fact that the vast majority of suicide terrorism is conducted by followers of Islam? Okay, thank you for your question. Very pointed, condensed, lots of issues there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. My name is Ahmed and I'm a Boston graduate student here at LSE. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I just wanted to ask you, do you expect the Muslim fundamentalism problem is going to continue growing throughout the uh, Muslim nations? And also, who is the most effective group or organization or institution to face those groups? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And any, any from up there? Yes, there's one right at the back from the top tier. People down here can't see, but we have a very full top tier up there. Hi. Yes, madam. Uh, can you hear me? Hi, Can hear you. Um, I'm actually visiting London from the States as well, um, from the University of Denver. Um, I wanted to ask you more of an international law question um, with regard to this topic. Um, mostly you see a lot of defendants end up in international criminal tribunals for crimes against humanity, war crimes. Um, do you see any militant groups um, in the future that may end up in such tribunals? Um, do you see that if it's feasible, maybe through the ICC or an ad hoc chapter seven court? Okay. You might also want to take one of our core courses in the MSc Human Rights, which deals with, <laughs> which deals with some of these issues. Uh, I think actually we can probably take one more at the front. Yeah. Mariam, if you'd like to raise your hand. Yes. Um, uh, thank you very much. It was brilliant. Um, and uh, I think for activists, it's very, very useful, all this evidence that you have. I'm Mariam Namazi. I'm with the uh, Council of Ex-Muslims and One Law for All. You, you mentioned, uh, you know, I, I agree with you completely on everything. Uh, the, the, the problematics of conflating Muslims with Islamism and so on and so forth. And you did talk about a criticism that, that a lot of people felt that their criticisms were not criticisms of Islam. But I, I believe there is also a need to criticize Islam. Uh, and I think it's important uh, for 
um, you know, to have an enlightenment uh, in the same way that there was one against Christianity, against Islam, and part of it, I think the most important part of it is fighting Islamism because even Muslims are not allowed to believe in the way that they want. But another component has to be the ability to challenge and criticize and even mock, mock Islam uh, as any other religion. Uh, and I, I'd like to hear your comments more on that. Okay, uh, can you sort the world out for us, Professor Benoon? <laughs> Thank you all for these great uh, comments and, and uh, questions. Um, so the first one about uh, legitimate grievances. I have really worried about the sort of debate that, that draws a sort of line from uh, certain causes. We've heard this a lot, that sort of every time uh, there's a jihadi attack that the, the fault is the Iraq war or the fault is Western violence in Afghanistan. I mean, I was against the war in Iraq and I recognize that the deaths of civilians at the hands of international troops in Afghanistan are a serious problem, but in absolutely no way do those things justify uh, killings of civilians, whether in, obviously in those countries. I mean, this to me has been the strangest thing in the world. So you're, the argument that somehow the Western violence against places like Iraq and Afghanistan justify Muslim fundamentalist violence in those same contexts against those same civilians, it's an argument I've never uh, understood. Uh, I also don't understand the argument when it's used to justify things uh, far away, whether the 7-7 uh, uh, bombings or, or uh, something else. And in fact, you know, those, those issues are very important issues to look at, but the fundamentalist groups themselves are very often trying to purvey uh, policies that would lead to equal, if not worse, uh, grievances. And you know, you asked sort of is there a relationship to the fundamental tenets of Islam in a way this relates to Maryam's uh, question. I mean, I do think there is a very important debate that has to happen among people of Muslim heritage, among uh, academics, whether they're of Muslim heritage or not, specialists, uh, you know, about what is needed to really change uh, ideology, uh, to, to change education and religious education that is giving rise to people who believe that this sort of violence uh, is okay. One of the explanations that I got uh, very often often from people doing the analytical uh, work, very interesting people like Sharifa Buata in Algeria, is that the fundamentalists very often have a discourse of purification. Uh, it's really not for them about sort of ending occupations or these other kind of worldly causes, uh, but it's about re-Islamizing populations that in their view have become uh, de-Islamized uh, and need to be purified. Purity is a very, very dangerous uh, idea. The, the second question, um, Sorry, will, will it continue? This is a great question. Um, I asked almost everyone that I met whether they were optimistic or not. Um, and I got very mixed answers about that, although people were very often trying to hang on to their optimism. One woman in Afghanistan said to me something I thought was very beautiful, optimism is key to survival. Uh, and so I think there are some very important things that have happened that would suggest that the tide is turning in some places. The protests in Turkey this summer, the mass popular protests in Tunisia after the assassination of Mohammed Brahmi at the end of July, although they have not yet succeeded in actually uh, sort of getting Ennahda uh, out of power, uh, but I think they've really changed uh, the debate in uh, Tunisia. Uh, the protests uh, in Egypt uh, in uh, June, whatever one thinks about what happened after those protests, but the mass popular mo mobilization against the Muslim Brotherhood. Nevertheless, I mean, I think we can see that these movements, and especially the more and more extreme violent uh, wing of these movements, are posing a major threat and are going to pose a major threat to human rights. I mean, I think about what is going to happen in Afghanistan in uh, 2014 and beyond uh, after the international troops uh, leave and the great fear that the international community will, just like in the 90s, stop uh, being interested. So in a way, I suppose the, your question 
is not a predetermined one, right? Whether this phenomenon is going to continue or not depends how much people are able to continue mobilizing and how much international support uh, they have. Who's the most affected group? Great question. Um, I would say almost everywhere I went, women were on the front lines. Women were the first to be attacked. Uh, and very often when women were attacked, uh, this was the case in Algeria in the 90s, this is the case in some other contexts, the international community does not see that violence as political. Uh, the Network of Women Living Under Muslim Laws always talks about that violence against women as being a warning sign of fundamentalism, but very often the international community is not paying attention and we have to start paying attention. But also religious minorities in many contexts and, and other uh, minorities, sexual minorities and so on, have been uh, m most in, in danger uh, in certain places as well. And I think one of the things we have to sort of really figure out as human rights activists is how to really mobilize uh, to support those who are most vulnerable. The international law question. Thank you very much for the international law uh, question. I think the lack of accountability for these groups has been a huge, huge problem, whether it's in Afghanistan, uh, where none of the warlords, the Mujahideen uh, warlords, were brought to justice uh, after 2001, as I know many Afghan uh, human rights activists so hoped that they would be, and instead sort of found themselves being empowered by uh, the international community. Uh, in Algeria, the same thing at the end of the 90s. You had very little in the way of an accountability process. There is some hope that uh, the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, the wonderful Fatou Bensouda, is investigating the Malian armed groups for their actions in northern Mali. But unfortunately, so far, her remit is quite narrow. I think she's particularly looking at the destruction of cultural property, which is an incredibly important issue. Uh, but the question, the outstanding question of accountability for the rest of the abuses uh, is incredibly important. Um, and I think we really, the international community really needs to engage uh, with that. Um, and, and this brings me back to Maryam's last question about criticisms of Islam. Um, I think that anyone should be able to criticize a religion. That's why I don't like the term Islamophobia. I think it, it conflates uh, the problem of discrimination against adherence, real or purported adherence of Islam, with the problem uh, of the, uh, an open debate about religion, and those to me are two separate questions. The discrimination is completely unacceptable. The open debate is incredibly important to uh, protect. The people in my book are across the spectrum, some atheists, some agnostics, uh, some uh, devout uh, believers or a range of kinds of uh, believers. Uh, and so I think what is important is to show that the fact that you are taking on the fundamentalist doesn't mean you are against Islam, which is the thing that people like me, people like them are regularly accused of. But I absolutely agree with you. There also needs to be a critical debate. I was thinking, you know, last night I had meant to try to go see the Book of Mormon, but of course it was sold out. And I thought, what if a British Muslim tried to put on a play in the West End, a musical, no less, called, you know, the Holy Quran, which was like a similar, you know, satire of some of the things that have gone terribly wrong uh, in some of the ways that Islam is practiced. I mean, it would just never happen. We don't, we're not deemed to have the right uh, to be as critical as other people. We're deemed to have a culture that is somehow, or a set of cultures that are too vulnerable to withstand that sort of open debate. And so I think defending that debate is absolutely important. Okay, thank you very much, Karima. Um, th there are actually six people waiting to Sorry. ask questions, um, and we've only got a, 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 a little bit of time. We've only got five minutes, so can I ask you to be brief? The lady at the front. Uh, my name is Uriam Sadek. I'm working for Amnesty International, but my question is more of me being an Afghan citizen rather than representing my organization. Uh, Karima, thank you very much for a very excellent book and the issue that you have raised, which is really critical for many Muslims, including myself. Uh, 
Uh, how do you see the role of the Western governments and USA in developing, encouraging, and promoting uh, Islamic fundamentalists, at least in the case of Afghanistan and uh, South Asia, particularly in Pakistan, I can see since 1978 when Russia invaded Afghanistan, how the Western countries and USA itself promoted Islamic fundamentalists in the region and in my country. And also in 1990s, when you participated in 1995 Beijing uh, conference when uh, Hillary Clinton was saying women rights are human rights, but then Bill Clinton was supporting Taliban government when women were slashed and beaten on the streets of Afghanistan. Uh, how do you see that role and what is your recommendation? Thank you. Okay, thank you. And we've got two questions from the front row, uh, first and second rows. Hi, uh, Karima. My name is Scott. I'm a member of the public. Um, my question is... Uh, in the Western media, one of the narratives we, we get is that the rise of Islamic fundamentalism in the Sunni Muslim community is linked to the expansion of Salafism and Wahhab ideology. Does that tally with your research, or is that an oversimplification? Okay, and the gentleman right at the very front. If you could be brief, sir. Professor Benun, uh, I'm privileged to be in your presence. Uh, you are the embodiment of the ideals of Bimbala. Uh, my, my question is, you are a member of the human, act, uh, human rights and, and uh, an, an activist and uh, Amnesty International. Amnesty International will not get the recognition it requires until unless it investigates the treatment of women in the Arabian Peninsula and the Gulf area. Until such time, it will not uh, get the, 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 the recognition. Uh, you, you touched upon Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden should be held in history as the, mo as the most okay, so vicious I, criminal who uh, in I'm, this world. So he was many, people, many, many people, I'm sure, would totally yeah, agree with that, many of the things he was saying. financed by the Americans. He was encouraged to wage war. And, and he, his father is a member of Carlisle Group, which, is, which has partners... Okay, sir, can I ask you, uh, so we've understood the point. If you could the, just hand over the microphone. The point is American financing, and it's the Bush uh, Group, which is the Carlisle Group, of financing the, bin Bell, uh, the Osama bin Laden. Finally... Okay, sir, if you could... Please, thank you very much. Thank you very much for your comments. Um, uh, for legal reasons, I have to say that any of the organizations mentioned are not ones that the LSE is saying are responsible for anything at all. Um, <laughs> there was a lady in the middle. That will be the last question. Uh, she's just waiting there in the red top. And this, I'm afraid, has to be the last question. We're very much running out of time. All very interesting questions and comments. <laughs> Uh, I'd like to thank you for your incredibly moving speech. Um, I just have a quick question. What are your views on the recent case of Malala Yousafzai? Um, because obviously that did receive a great deal of media coverage as opposed to the untold stories that you mentioned. Um, do you think that it successfully enlightened people on the various issues that pe uh, women face in regards to seeking knowledge? And what would you say to the criticisms that she's merely a political pawn of Western imperialism. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you for those questions. 
Um, so how to do justice to so many important questions in a very uh, short time. I really want to thank uh, Huria Mossadegh, who's a very brave Afghan human rights defender, for her very important question because she raised something that I wish that I'd had time to talk about, and that is the culpability of Western governments that claim now that they're fighting fundamentalism and terrorism uh, for creating part of this problem. Now, my dad was an anthropologist, and he would always lecture me, Karima, there are both endogenous and exogenous uh, causes, so external and, and internal. So I'm certainly not blaming the whole problem on this, but uh, certainly it exacerbated the situation. And Horia gave what is perhaps the worst example, which was the support of the Americans, uh, the British, the Saudis, and so on, of virtually any group, uh, any Mujahideen group fighting the Soviet Union, any other group fighting the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, regardless of how extreme its ideology was. And in fact, Huria is one of the people I had the honor of interviewing for my book, and she told me, uh, the, reminded me, in fact, uh, that the U.S. had supported the worst, of the most extreme of uh, the Mujahideen groups, Hizbi Islami, headed by Gulbatin uh, Hekmatyar, and, and gave much of the funding and uh, support to him, and bears a lot of the responsibility. And this has a direct relationship on many other, with many other countries, including Algeria, because then foreign jihadis came also and took part in this and went home with the training and the, the battle experience that they had in this kind of U.S.-funded uh, jihad, and so the problem really metastasized. And, and clearly when we think about accountability, we need to think, to go back to the other question of accountability in uh, the first instance uh, for uh, the jihadis, uh, but also for those who uh, fund them uh, and supported them. And, you know, this is not the, the example she gave is not the only example. If you talk to many people who are trying to work against fundamentalism in North Africa, today in countries like Egypt and Tunisia, uh, particularly in Tunisia where uh, Anahda is still in power, uh, at least for the moment, it, they will tell you that they feel, especially right after the uprisings of 2011, that the U.S. government was very strongly supporting Anahda and the Muslim Brotherhood and the Muslim Brotherhood uh, affiliates, uh, perhaps because they thought, you know, having used Mubarak's and Ben Ali's in the past, they could now use uh, the fundamentalists to sort of keep uh, order, and what they were really afraid of is democratic secular nationalists who would really ask questions about the global economy and the interests of their own uh, societies and making sure that they had governments that champion those interests rather than just doing uh, the bidding of the West. So I think there are, as Haria points out uh, in her interview in the book, there are a lot of questions that have to be asked uh, about uh, these governments and, and that are claiming to be sort of fighting terrorism and, and their responsibility. A lot more I could say about that, but sorry, I, I know we're running out of time. The Salafism and the, the Wahhabi ideology, I'll address that uh, very quickly. I mean, this is something that people identified in many places that I went, whether it was in uh, Chechnya, in uh, the Caucasus, or in uh, West Africa. Uh, the Wahhabi ideology and the, the promotion of that ideology by Saudi funding and other funding from the Gulf that is being sent uh, to these countries to support organizations and movements uh, that promote that ideology that really distorts uh, Islam in, in terrible ways. In fact, one of the, uh, Lias Bukra, one of the scholars from Algeria uh, on terrorism who I quote in the book, sort of talks about Wahhabism as a, as a rejection of cosmopolitan uh, versions of Islam. And I think combating that ideology and co combating the governments in the Gulf that the gentleman alluded to uh, that have been so strongly supported by the West and that have promoted uh, that ideology really has to be a critical part of the agenda in taking on these movements. And I think I better stop there because I see you looking at your watch. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, before, before my formal thanks, uh, oh, I didn't can I just remind you about uh, 
numerous events that the Centre runs. The Centre runs a number of uh, wonderful, interesting events, one of which is on December the 10th on UN International Human Rights Day, which is an event celebrating the life and work of our friend and colleague uh, and the founder of the Human Rights Centre, Professor Stan Cohen. So very much hope you can come to that. If you want to be informed about the Centre's various events, please look on the Centre's website or follow us on Twitter um, at LSE Human Rights. Can I thank Karima Banoon again for coming to speak to us this evening? Thank you.